Hello, this is Lunar Poetry Podcast. I'm David Turner. Today, I'm in Birmingham for the Verve Poetry Festival. Uh, today's episode is in three parts, all recorded in Birmingham. My trip to Birmingham was funded by the Arts Council money that I got last summer, as is the transcript that will accompany this episode. If you want to find out what we're up to, then you can find us at Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook, Tumblr, SoundCloud and iTunes, or at silent underscore tongue on Twitter. I'm joined by Stuart Bartholomew, who's going to explain a bit what Verve Poetry Festival is and how it came about. Gosh, that's a big question. Thank you. Well, we we wanted to do Verve. We're in Birmingham and we felt like there wasn't enough poetry being noticed here. And there's a massive spoken word scene in Birmingham. There's also lots of really good page poets. Uh, The scene felt very disparate and we just thought, well, we want people, A, to come here and B, to see what's here. So Verve was born out of that. The other thing we were trying to do was we felt that because we're a very kind of multicultural city and also very broad range of poetry going on here, we wanted to try and build a festival that reflected that. Verve tries to do that. We've got pretty much half the programme is spoken word, half is page poetry. We wanted people to come from every kind of different background, and I think we've managed that. You know, we just quite naturally booked a lot of women because I think there's some amazing women poets and we just felt like we wanted to hear them. Why it hasn't happened before, no idea. I've been following a lot of the performers and readers on Twitter and everyone seems to be really impressed with the lineup. You've done a really good job of highlighting that the mechanisms behind organising a festival are obviously very difficult but having a diverse lineup is not that tricky is it? It's, It's easy as pie. For me the festival designed itself, I'm called the programmer But, you know, I just didn't feel like I was making choices half the time. Some of the people who've come have just been so obvious to be here. And, you know, you just see some of the the festivals where it's all men or, you know, there's a lack of different races present and you just wonder how that could happen. Particularly because this is a city centre festival as well. We just felt like, you know, look out the window, that's what it's got to look like and that's what we achieved, I think. Yeah, talking to uh, one, of the, one of your performers, Amira Saleh, who will come up in the programme that you're about to listen to, we had very much a similar conversation about it's about time that it's one of the event, few events I've come to that's actually gotten close to reflecting the people outside. Yeah, yeah, and you know, they're all writing poetry, they're all listening to poetry in their own ways and places, and just the joy in some of their eyes when they heard we wanted them to come here and be together and be with each other. One of the things that I've really loved about this festival, and I didn't know this would happen necessarily, but the amount of poets who've come to see other poets and the amount of poets who've stayed after their performance to see different poets and just just learnt new things and see new ways forward. And, you know, that, that's got to be a good thing. Definitely. I'll be posting links to Verve Poetry Festival and everything they're up to and might be up to in the future so you can follow what they're doing via our social media. Um, I've now dug myself into a hole because I never record introductions before I've done the editing. I have no idea who's coming up next. I'm going to guess it's Amira. (laughs) Thank you, Stuart. You're welcome. Thanks a lot. She is a mythical angelic light that sits on her tattered, passed-down muglis, wondering whether her sons are going to come home for lunch. She's cooked and cleaned. She aligns the overused curtains across the balcony to dry. The long grandfather clock dangles its existence into the room to remind her 
of time. Her sons are bloodied red meat rebels fighting the devil for blessings. Their coal-stained chipped fingernails remind them of the elbow grease they put into home. They wrap her in exorbitant ribbons of gold for solitude and protection. She, she is the acrylic softness on a paintbrush breastfeeding two puppies at once. Whilst her feet flake off excess of disorientated bodies in her eyeline outside, she, she does not know of sons who come home. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's really nice to meet you. Nice um, to meet thank you. you for joining me on the podcast. <laughs> Maybe it would be best if we start with a short introduction to you. Um, my name's Amira Saleh. Uh, I'm a spoken word artist, born and bred Brummie, and I work for an organisation called Beat Freaks here based in Birmingham. Just to give a bit of context, we're here in Birmingham, in Waterstones, for Verve Poetry Festival. Yeah. If I've done my job correctly, this will be part of a collection of interviews all based at Verve Poetry, yeah. but we shouldn't speak too soon. <laughs> it may not turn out that way. But we, I've just watched you read, and I was really very impressed. Thank you. Your introduction there was slightly different to the one you did downstairs, and it might be in, good to begin by discussing the differences between, as you were saying, you introducing yourself as a producer and as a solo performer. Maybe recap that a bit as to how you see the differences. So I produce quite a few events in and around Birmingham, and I think that's the hat that I have in the city a lot. So it's kind of comes with... Hi, I'm Amir, I work at Beat Freaks. That's generally my producer and uh, campaigns hat on. And then when it's me as a solo, I'm a spoken word artist. So it's, it's a mindset. It's a different kind of mental shift and it's the same with hosting. So it's different when I'm hosting something to performing to producing. Yeah, you were saying that you're a lot more downbeat. Or, or sorry, I should say it the other way around. It's a bit more positive to say that way, isn't it? You're far more upbeat when you're hosting. So you hosted the dice, or the apples and snakes dice yeah, last did. night, didn't you? Yeah. It's been really well attended, hasn't it, so it's far? The poetry, it, a lot of stuff sold out. Well, the reason I wanted to start talking about that is because I definitely understand what you mean. When I'm doing the podcast stuff, although it's my voice the majority of the time is hosting, we do have other hosts. But I deliberately never post pictures of myself. I'm try to be as invisible as possible yeah. as a producer. But I've, no, I've had that struggle as well when I read on stage, like, that conflict of suddenly, what, you know, which role are you playing, which persona are you playing? So what do you do with Beat Freaks exactly? What kind of organisation is that? So we are a youth engagement agency based in Birmingham and very proud Brummies, um, as you, you'd, you'd know if you met the whole team. We help brands and organisations better understand and engage with young people. That's kind of, in essence, everything we do is through creativity. So we can go through 18-month campaign with the Heritage Lottery Fund to get more young people understanding what heritage is in the city to supporting with kind of like festivals like this um, and getting young people really, as you say, a seat at the table. So we give or try to give young people kind of that seat at the table with people that make decisions in the city. It's been an interesting day, actually. I don't know whether it was deliberately planned in that way but hearing yourself talk like that, yeah. Anthony from Outspoken, Joel Taylor, about this idea of giving platforms yeah. over to people. Is, is your job easy in that way? You know, we're talking from like, not just from support you get 
as usual, my questions are not fully formed. I think in my head, I'm carrying around this idea, there's this lazy assumption that it's hard to engage young people. That's right? the assumption people have, yeah. yeah, and that's, we kind of like to go with no, no young person's hard to reach. There's just better ways of reaching yeah, them. Yeah. And that's kind of what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how does the city support what you do? Do you get a lot of support? Yeah, we're kind of, as a brand, we're very well known in the city and outside in the city. We've got a little branch out in Barbados as well um, from uh, Lucy, who used to work with us here and then went back home and set up there. So it's it's lovely. With young people, we're, we're a very trusted brand. Arts organisations a lot like to put beat freaks on because it, it's a good reputation. And with, with organisations and kind of brands in the, in the city, I think they see us as youthful, diverse, but professional. We all like to think so, anyway. No, no, I'm sure they do. No, sorry, but that, um, the wry smile on my face was not questioning your answer then. It's more, I suddenly had these ideas, um, planning meetings at councils desperately, with you know, a whiteboard with yeah. diversity written in yeah. big blue letters. Yeah. Do you have issues with organisations, with them understanding your version of diversity or representation? Yeah, so we're... We're running something on the 30th of March. We're doing a big, it's called Brom Youth Trends. And we're bringing a load of stakeholders and and organisations from the city into a room. And we're launching a report called uh, Brom Youth Trends. So we've we've currently got over 500 young people doing the survey on what they think the trends are in 2017, where they go to access media, where they buy stuff from, what the little habits are of young people in Birmingham. And that will be launched in like a top 10 mm. kind of uh, report. But we're also running a workshop on that day called a Don't Say Diverse When You Really Mean Brown. Good. Good. I like <laughs> yeah. the sound of that. Um, I think the reason these questions are on my mind, I recently attended what, what was a very good workshop and seminar looking into researching how creativity can help the mental well-being of young people. Yeah, and there was two definite camps in the room. Those that were sort of researching and had come with the assumption that it would be impossible to get kids off their iPhones and get them to listen against the people who are actually doing the work. And we're like, no, we just can't, you can't get them to sit down. You know, I want you to engage with them. And it was interesting to see that, interesting slash depressing that that is still happening, you know, because it it just means that I suppose the money isn't always released in the right places, you know, to to those that know how to use it, you know. How, if in any way, does this work inform your writing? Oh, um... I think it's it's like my Instagram bio. It goes that I care about poetry, young people, social change in Yemen, and they're kind of like that's me in a nutshell. Mm. So, Beat Freaks is social young people. Oh, so it hits all of those. Um, I think I know quite a lot of the young people in Birmingham that are artists or come for me for advice or come and have a conversation with me, as you just saw earlier. So for me, Beat Freaks allows that bigger platform, that bigger community, that bigger network other than just, you know, sending a message on Facebook and going, ah, I've got a poem, please read it. There's that support network, and we run that through monthly events that we do in the city where, you know, we can convene 200 young people in a room. Half of them literally just listen and half of them share, and there's this really beautiful mixing and networking that happens that isn't a networking event. So, yeah, it's it's about not just me trying to do so much. It's about doing what I do good and well and then allowing beat freaks to kind of flourish in everything else so the young people being able to be peers to each other and, and 
advocate for each other like that. Yeah, I think that's what really interests me about the most successful sort of youth work that's going on. I, I was just trying to think of Jacob Samuel Rose oh, at yeah. Barbican Young Poets and Rachel Long, who is now working yeah. as his assistant. You know, just this idea of bringing together young people. Actually, this isn't only exclusive to young people. This is this is this is uh, relevant to anyone without a platform. But since we're speaking in this direction, giving people the chance to talk about ideas and then some place to speak is just seems such a simple idea. Absolutely. I almost cannot fathom why it's not happening. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know, I don't even have a question there. Yeah. I just am exasperated by the fact you, that... You'll be very, very surprised as well to take that idea to some organisations and brands that will go, wow. Yeah, yeah. And you go, but you, you can't even go, are you being, like, serious? Like, you've got to go, it's too different world yeah we're very lucky to be in a world where young people are getting not just seats at the tables but full-on hours at the table to have those conversations about our history about what it means to be black or um, muslim at this time we're so lucky to be able to provide those platforms and, and spaces for young people to do that when you step out of a sector and you go into another one which is what we do we work cross sector so we're constantly balancing those and like yay creativity to what are you talking about and it's those conversations that you try and like really fit together you briefly alluded to a conversation that's happening before we were recording um and i don't think it's giving too much away we're not going to mention any names or anything but you were being asked by someone that you knew about the role of politics in their work or identity the, the politics of identity I suppose and you know you don't have to be overtly an activist yeah. to talk about politics and I just want we touched on briefly in that conversation uh, the personal being the political yeah. this is again not a question but maybe you could just uh, just yeah, explain yeah. a bit what you're saying there yeah so for me I think I don't think I've ever called myself an activist outward like just been like hey I'm a mirror and I'm an activist I've said I'm a human rights supporter but uh, activist comes with a, a certain pressure and look from people, but I completely wholeheartedly believe that your personal is political and your political is personal. And uh, I, as I was saying to the young boy, I was, young man, I was just chatting to him being black, a black boy on a stage. If there is a black boy in that audience, then all of a sudden he is he is connecting with another young man in that audience, and that is his form of activism, it doesn't have to be, let alone the content that could, you know, I've, I've seen him do brilliant pieces about, you know, hypermasculinity or doing pieces around um, being black, British born, and what it means for him as a young, a young man. So it's, it's almost like the content is secondary, it's who you are as a person and everything, all your experiences that you bring with that, you can't run away from it in poetry. Yeah, actually, the and the episode that I was telling that that guy about with um, Travis Alabanza, who, if anyone listens regularly to the podcast, will know Travis and their work and how amazing they are. So I'm not have to go into that too much. But they were also talking about how when Travis is booked to read in front of predominantly queer audiences of color, there's a completely different side mm-hmm. and reading to their work. But if you put Travis and all that they represent in front of a, a, a quote-unquote normal poetry crowd that is predominantly white. Mm. Travis's 
appearance at the microphone on its own is political yeah. enough. And uh, I think it was, it was interesting to hear you giving that advice. And I suppose this must come up a lot in Birmingham, what, you know, with the mix of people and stuff. Um, it was quite strange. It's not often that I leave South East London mm-hmm. and come to a place and think, oh, it's not, you know, the mix of people hasn't really changed very Birmingham's much. Birmingham's <laughs> <laughs> And we don't have to debate. Now. I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you, we're in Birmingham, I'll let you have that. There you go, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're, you're here, you've got at least okay. I'll just Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I suppose the, the uh, I was going to, as I said earlier, I wasn't going to use the word issues, but I will now. Um, the issues and topics that young people are talking about here, I assuming are, must be quite similar to those that are coming up in London and probably Manchester. But they, I would assume that those three cities are isolated as you travel further through the country. You know? Yeah, and I mean, like me standing up in a crowd in Leamington Spa is a political thing being a Muslim in a scarf, female, you know, to be doing poems around a complete, uh, you know, another part of the world. That is, that is political, but the crossover, when you bring it down to human in the words, everyone can re- resonate with it. Everyone can relate and no matter what the appearance can make you kind of go, oh, I'm not going to, you know, there's nothing relatable here. There's something in it that makes you go, okay, something connects us. And that's what I like about poetry, really like that. No, you summed up something I've been struggling to say for a long time. <laughs> I think that's the real beauty of it, is that you can say extremely powerful things in very subtle mm. ways if you are aware of who, you, especially performance poetry and spoken yeah. word, but even as a page poet standing and speaking at a microphone, if you're aware of your situation mm-hmm. and your position, you don't have to be so obvious in the way you, that you, you don't well, you don't have to list those things for people because people can see it you know yeah poetry is reform not revolution is what i say okay poetry's subtle subtle little changes i'm going to change these 30 people yeah. or something that so the way i dress which is very well thank you a little <laughs> bit different to what somebody would assume a muslim woman would wear mm-hmm. um and that's political yeah 100% yeah so me standing on a stage is already a stance yeah. that I'm making without me speaking. So when you add everything to it, you almost, the content doesn't become secondary, but it becomes an, an add-on to this bigger package. So my me standing on stage without speaking is somebody's looked and gone, oh, okay. And I go, hi, I'm Amira Saleh, I'm a Muslim spoken word artist. Someone goes, I didn't know. Muslims dress like that. That's definitely reform. Yeah. I haven't gone out and protested on the streets of Birmingham like you've probably seen all day happening outside of Waterstones. That's every Saturday, by the way. It's rowdy out there, yeah, isn't it? it yeah, is, yeah, yeah. I liked it. It was good. It's it, different as well. It's different, like yeah. someone's calling for Muhammad, someone's calling for Jesus. Yeah. Someone's calling for Without being too sort of urban centric, if anyone knows what it's like to stand outside Brixton Tube Station, it's got that <laughs> vibe to it. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Just got one eye on the clock, so I don't want to run over too much because that means too much editing and yeah, cutting stuff yeah. out. Is there anything coming up for yourself personally um, or Beat Freaks that you'd want to mention? Well, the first the first Thursday of March, um, we were in quite a popular night in Birmingham called Poetry Jam, um, and that is an open mic and free for everybody to come. It's um, currently at Java Lounge Coffee. It's, it's in a coffee shop because um, they like the kind of industrial aspect of coffee shops and what it means 
to young people. It's also in a neutral space, so it's not branded and it's independent, but it also is inclusive to people that don't want to be around alcohol and so it's very clever. <laughs> Actually, that's a, a very good point. I think a few event organisers in London need to catch on to the idea that yeah. um, bars and pubs are not necessarily the first place to, to throw events on now. Yeah. And that's not even religious. There's just no, no. some parents won't allow their Absolutely, you know yeah, kids yeah. to go out and go to places where they think. Whereas the you know at sixteen, seventeen, mum was like, "Oh, okay, you're in a coffee shop. Yeah. Okay." If I said to my mum, "I'm in a pub," she'd be like, "One, you shouldn't be drinking. Yeah. Two, what the hell are you doing in a pub at I nine have, o'clock?" I have plenty of friends that just don't want to be around people yeah. drinking, and it's yeah. nothing to do with religion. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And um, so that's so at Java Lounge. There's we try and fit twenty five open mic slots. In two hours, it's first come, first served by seven o'clock, all the open mics are usually gone, so about 6.30 people arrive. That is at 7pm, 7 till 9pm. And anything for yourself coming up? Any gigs booked or...? Um, if anybody listens from Belgium, I'm in Belgium. <laughs> they might do. I'll have to go through my um, yeah. SoundCloud. Uh, I can see which towns people are listening okay, to, so I'll check yeah. out, see if there's any... And if you are listening from Belgium, thank you very much. Yeah, and, no, and thank check you. out what's this gig happening in Belgium. Yeah, that's I'm, I'm doing a few big projects around. Um, I don't do a lot of work directly in my community, um, and that was purposeful over the last few years because it could have swayed um, who I was as an artist, but also as a person. So I actively kind of moved away from my community, and by my community, I mean Muslim women and females specifically. But also Muslim men. I like to challenge barriers, uh, challenge um, perceptions. So I'm doing a big piece of work over the next year with the Birmingham Rep Theatre in that community, talking to a lot of parents and women about what it means for their children to ch- follow their dreams and why um, something like an arts career isn't as valued as much as being a lawyer or a doctor. I need to, along with American spoken word eyes, I need to stop talking to youth workers because they make me sound really pessimistic and cynical <laughs> because you have so many great... Things going on. It's amazing. <laughs> We're going to run out of time. Um, I will put links to all of your social media Thank stuff you. in the episode description. Also, I'll be retweet. We'll yeah. follow each other. I'll retweet yeah, stuff. Yeah, um, so it's probably easier than reading it out now. And we'll finish with uh, one more reading, please. Um, this hasn't got a title, so if anybody can suggest a title, that'd be brilliant. I am built on money stolen from my brothers in Somalia. Built on what was once Jewish land, built on business, never people. Tell me my country is victim, I will tell you no. My country is not victim, it is not enemy, it is not rebel. It is innocent lives who don't know how to understand what once happened. And when Saudis say that they are Saudi, I say no, never. You derived from Yemen, stolen from Yemen, took everything that we own and sold it to the big dogs. And now you build monsters and tell them that you help us. Tell me how. Tell me why. My own uncles are getting rejected at your borders whilst his wife's house being bombed. Bombs found that were only used once in Iraq. Told that they were too dangerous to use again. So Britain stopped making and Saudi stopped buying. So that's what they told us. Tell me why my six-year-old cousin ran with these, telling the police he's never seen these before, that they're new. Tell me Britain hasn't been secretly selling these to Saudi. Tell me why they're being thrown on civilians. Tell me why the hell my six-year-old cousin recognises bombs so well. And when your life shifts at 3.56am to be precise, 
You are sat on the corner of your bed in your very, very nice house with countdown playing in the background. You realise you've been trying to build a political status for yourself, for a country you never believed in, for activism or artivism or whatever the hell they call it that doesn't mean anything to you here. Don't tell me that I'm not doing enough or that I should be doing more or even that the foundations of me are being built here, have been built here. My foundations were made in the concrete and soil of Aden. Reborn again at nine when families of over 50 would gather in a one-bed house for the sake of unity. My foundations were made when trying to talk to doctors became a barrier. Language wahed ithnan arba'adua akhlat gambal qa'ada baffled in panic and picking out what they want to understand. My foundations were never built here. My foundations were built in Yemen when I realised that all homes come broken. Thank you. Thank you very thank much, Amira. Thank you for joining us. No, thank um, you. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it has. Thank you. Yeah. Well, fancy that. I didn't mess up the intro. That was indeed Amira Saleh. Lucky me. Next up, we've got Emma Wright from the Emma Press. She's talking about their latest poetry anthology, This Is Not Your Final Form, which is a collection of poems about Birmingham. One thing I did forget to mention at the beginning was that, as always, if you like what we do, please tell your friends. We've got no advertising budget. It would help a lot. Here's Emma Wright. Hello, Emma. How are you doing? Hello, I'm I'm well, thank you. Yeah. I have had a very wonderful Verve Poetry Festival. It's been really nice, hasn't it? You've been far busier than I have, but maybe we can talk about that in a minute. <laughs> maybe you could start off with you giving a brief intro to Emma Press and the work that you do. Yeah. The Emma Press started in 2012. I'd just finished my job at Orion Publishing Group. I was working on their ebooks. I was their ebook production controller, converting 500 ebooks a year. And I fancied something different. And also, I'd had time to have a lot of thoughts about publishing while creating these 500 ebooks a year. So I wanted to dabble in editorial and cover design and marketing and um, in text design as well. And so I had lots of ideas about the processes which I wanted to get involved in. And also, I guess I thought more widely about the publishing industry and how it was really kind of the top positions were dominated by men and then everything else was run by women. <laughs> and I liked the idea of starting a press that was very obviously run by women to kind of add into the other really great feminist publishing houses like Virago and Persephone and... I thought one way of doing that was just to put my name there yeah. and kind of as a pledge that it would be a, a personal publishing house. I think another thing I'd noticed while working at Orion was that people didn't really seem to care about the publishing houses. I'd say I, I, I worked at Orion, so people at parties and they wouldn't really have heard of it. They'd know the authors, but they'd have no kind of connection to the publishing houses. And I thought, well, this is, this is clearly a problem that no one cares about the fates of anything other than Penguin and maybe Random House or something. So I, I thought... I want to get, create a press that has personality and that will be aspects of my personality. So yesterday, which would have been Saturday the 18th of February, uh, you had a, a small showcase at Verve Poetry Festival here at Waterstones in Birmingham um, to launch a new anthology called This Is Not Your Final Form, edited by Richard O'Brien and yourself. Yep. 
could you tell us a bit about how that came about? And I was going to say the link to Birmingham, but as soon as you explain what it is, that's going to be obvious. <laughs> but. Well, so I moved to Birmingham in 2015. I, I came from Reading and the Waterstones there just hadn't been very interested in the Emma Press as a new publisher and there aren't that many other bookshops in Reading either so I hadn't really had that much of a connection to the, the retail scene there but when I moved to Birmingham I thought okay this is my new chance I'm, I'm going to get into the bookshops here I want to see Emma Press books in the city where I live so I kind of tweeted at Stuart um, the regional manager of Waterstones and I think it was quite a passive-aggressive tweet. <laughs> um, I think they were doing a general shout out for ideas of things to do in, in their new refurbished premises and I just said I would like to see more poetry events from a, po a local poetry publisher <laughs> and then Stuart called me in to have a meeting and we just well, one of the main things we talked about was how Birmingham should have its own poetry anthology because that would be something that Waterstones could sell and that's one way it could support the local poetry scene so that was something that was ticking over and then um, Verve happened the, the idea of Verve was born through various discussions between Stuart and Cynthia and Ros Goddard I guess we were talking about different ways that I could be involved and I really wanted to programme the children's events because I um, got very passionate about poetry for children and then also I, I wanted to create this really excellent book of poems celebrating the city that would be a kind of a way of uh, me learning about this new city that I live in and uh, a way of meeting lots of local authors and reaching out to them because it felt really important that I could have did something to tell people I was here and that I wanted to be a local publisher um, and someone that they could send writing into. Yes, yeah, so, so then the festival you know, picked up pace and there was the idea of the festival competition. And so the entries, well, all the, all the poems that we read for This Is Not Your Final Form, they were entries into the competition. So Hannah Silver picked out the winners and then myself and Richard O'Brien, uh, we read through all the, the entries and picked out poems which we thought constructed a, a really varied portrait of the city. And that's what the title references, this is not your final form, that Birmingham isn't really what people think it is. No. <laughs> um, people from the outside, we wanted to tackle kind of You've definitely the... got that feeling of the kind of city that doesn't, it never going to seem quite finished either. Like, yeah. There's a lot going on, isn't there? A lot of development. And, yeah. Um, and in the year and a half I've been here, I feel like so much has changed yeah. already and it must be exhausting if you've been here for any longer than that. What was the uptake like when you asked for submissions you got a good response that? yeah we got I think maybe about 250 mm. people sent poems in and so. how did actually some something that does interest me quite a lot is how did your selection process work we did you give a criteria to Hannah first before she chose which poems went in or we didn't give any criteria okay. to Hannah. So Hannah is, is a Birmingham native, so yeah. I guess she had her ideas about what she wanted to represent um, Birmingham in this first, the first um, Verve Poetry Festival, so a, a really a significant event for the city. And I guess there's that kind of pressure to pick out poems which are, are worthy of, of being the first ones, the inaugural winners. And she picked out a really, really fascinating selection. They're, they're really great poems and... I don't think they're very obviously about Birmingham. They're kind of tangential, and it was interesting seeing her from her choices that I guess she wants to, what she, how she wants to portray the city, which she obviously has has strong feelings about. Um, and then for the rest of the poems, me and Richard went through, and we we tried to 
I guess we were looking for poems that surprised us and poems which chimed with our um, feelings about the city, but also poems that um, just kind of showed us a new way of seeing parts of the city because we've barely begun to explore this kind of huge area. So we felt like we wanted to have a certain amount of information in the book, <laughs> so kind of explaining stories or bits of um, slang, or and but also, I guess, more of a similar route to Hannah, just we wanted to show the different um, roles that the city can take in people's lives. So just going on a date in Birmingham, that's the winning poem by Susanna Dickey, or just having you know, having passed through Birmingham and just remembering its road system or something. We wanted to engage with all, or as many aspects as possible. So we were looking for a real range, but also just that kind of essential spark that we're always looking for when yeah. editing books. That sounds really interesting. I'm looking forward to reading it. I actually picked <laughs> up a copy yesterday, so... Um... I'm looking forward to that. And if people want to get a copy themselves, do you have an online store or where can people order it from? Yes, so you can order it from my website, which is theemmapress.com yep. or from all good bookshops. Yeah, all the best ones. <laughs> they better shape up, eh? Um, yes. Thank you very much for your time, Emma. Thank you for oh, joining thank us. You. And finally, I'm joined by Luke Kennard, who is a lecturer at Birmingham University and the author of Kane which is available for Pend in the Margins. We're mainly talking about that poetry collection, um, which has just recently been longlisted for the International Dylan Thomas Prize. Before Luke, I just wanted to say a big thank you to Verve Poetry Festival, Waterstones and Birmingham in general. Although I didn't get to see much of the city, poetry is all-consuming. Here's Luke. Nut Factory. The unshelled peanuts pour down the flume like a throng of ecstatic bald men dancing. I put my hands into the flume and raise them. I let the peanuts fall over my head. I place a nut between my teeth. It tastes of pencil lead. I place the bad nut in an iron trough. When the trough is full, it is taken to the furnace. The good nuts are portioned, weighed and sealed into foil bags but I am not involved in this. We can eat as many nuts as we like. We are all so sick of nuts, we cry sometimes. Friday mornings we leave the factory dancing like unshelled peanuts pouring down a flume. Thank you very much, Luke. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Good. I'm a little hungover, but that, that, that usually makes me more apt to talk about myself. So it's yeah, yeah, it's pretty. Um, I think a heavy night of drinking is the perfect preparation for talking about poetry anyway. Yeah. I really like the last line of that. The peanuts pouring down a flume there. Which um, collection was that you reading That's from? That's in The Harbour Beyond the Movie, um, which came out in 2007. And who's that through? Um, it was um, Salt. Salt. He was still doing um, single author collections of poetry at that point, which yeah. they stopped in about 2012, 2012, 2013, I forget when. Um, and they're doing, they're kind of doing literary fiction now, which is, yeah. they've got some great, some really good stuff on their list. But they, it was, I remember it as a slightly bleak time where I nearly, I nearly just gave up writing completely because okay. I'd sort of I'd, I'd written two novels which had completely failed, and there isn't really even anything good to sort of fill it from them for a short story. Yeah, they were yeah. just long, long failures, and didn't have any idea for for what to try to do for the next for the next novel. And I think my fourth poetry book, with Salt, had sort of, and I know it's kind of vulgar to think of in terms of sales and, and readers, but I think my fourth collection sold about 140 copies or something like that. Okay, and it just felt yeah. a bit like. Like the ones before that had sort of been at least in the sort of low thousands, and then it was just like, oh my god, you know, I, like absolutely nobody cares about this. So like, so what does it matter if I'm kind of developing or changing what I'm doing when it's actually just 
unfortunately, it's a na I mean, it's a complete natural thing to do to liken a success, the success of a book with mm. sales numbers because there isn't really another gauge, is there? No, and, no, there no, and it no, is no, an act of communication, yeah. isn't it? And, and, if it, and if nobody is yeah. there, if nobody's receiving it, so I didn't mean to go all sort of self pity or straight away, no, 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 it wasn't no. my intention at all, but I kind of. So, I mean, I think I, I was just thinking, well, you know, I don't have a publisher anymore. I don't really, feel, I, I was kind of thinking, well, maybe I'll just, I don't know, I'll just start writing more articles and essays on poetry and I can just publish those instead for my sort of research output for, for, the, for the lectureship that I have and, and maybe just leave writing because it's not really, it's not really working out. So I had about, so I sort of sulked in that way for about three or four months, I think, yeah. before starting the next novel. And then Tom Chivers, who's the editor of Pens in the Margins, kind of more or less talked me into into writing another collection of poetry. Yeah. Sort of so really, you were close to completely knocking writing on that, the head. That's or, what I felt. Yeah, that's what I felt like, at the yeah. time. Yeah, I would just go on long walks to sulk <laughs> in the evening. Yeah. And, just and was, this, is this, was this out of the ordinary for you? Is this quite yeah. a, a shock to, to yourself? or A, li a little, yeah, because yeah. it's the only thing that I'm good at. So it was, yeah. sort of, so it was a bit, in a way, it was a bit of a temper tantrum as yeah. much as anything else. Because I have it about every... Three months. <laughs> sort of I just want to no, jack everything. Every yeah. quarter, yeah, yeah, yeah. Quarter yeah. I have to get yeah. that feeling out of my system. Yeah, um, yeah, and it probably keeps you going a bit as well. It's kind of a necessary death drive to the to the. But do you think it's a necessary experience. part of self criticism as well to get that down on yourself? Yeah, yeah. No, I think it keeps you. It sort of keeps you hungry. It keeps you wanting to actually do something that is interesting. I think the thing that made me want to sort of see Kane through, apart from the fact that it was a sort of research project as well, so I could just do a lot of reading and make a lot of notes. If I wasn't really feeling like writing, I could just spend several hours doing that and still feel like I'd done something, I'd been productive. But it was also just thinking like, what if nobody is interested in another collection of standalone poems by me, because that's sort of how it felt. Like, is there something that people might be interested in? Like, is there, and I, so I was thinking more in terms of like a sequence, more in terms of, I was teaching a yeah. module on DMA at Birmingham that was stories that are a bit more like prose poems. And I'm teaching at the moment, and we sort of look at some Maggie Nelson, and I'm bringing Claudia Rankin's Citizen onto it next year, which is sort of titles yeah. a lyric essay. Yeah. Sort of yeah. thing. Just, things that kind of books of poetry that are kind of just one thing, that have a kind of unified, properly unified theme or even plot to yeah. them. And I think that, that's kind of, that kind of excites me slightly more. And I suppose I felt as though it had more of a hook, in a way, mm. than just, oh, here's another, here's another book by me with 50 or so poems in it, and the title is is a fragment of one of the lines in my I think I just felt so bored of doing that as well. Yeah. Just like I had nothing more, like I'd sort of written myself into a corner a bit. Well, maybe we should talk about Kane a little bit now then, because I suppose my, my opening question or opinion, I suppose more than a question is, talking about being so quite down on yourself about lack of sales and all, but that feeding into wanting to communicate with people. What leads you then to writing what is essentially a very complicated yeah. collection to get into, or, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, like, I think partly just a sense that um, there is an audience who, who actually really like things that are quite difficult and yeah. quite tricky. And, and I suppose I knew also while I was writing it, and I was really, especially the anagrams, which is kind of the centerpiece of the book, that, um, that I was really obsessed with them, that I was really enjoying them. And, and still, to me, I, <laughs> I sort of, I think of them really fondly, in spite of the fact that almost every review of it sort of says, uh, the animals, the I don't know. Okay, but on the other hand, it kind of, there are people, writers who I know who are more on the, maybe more on the kind of avant-garde side of the spectrum who really like that. And, and I mean, I'd, I'd, yeah, I definitely have got a list in my head of people I'm sure would really love it. Maybe you should explain. Yeah, um, so 
it's a brief passage from Genesis, the bit after Cain has killed Abel and has to and is sort of confronted by God and tries to make an excuse. So it includes the phrase "Am I my brother's keeper?" and then. God kind of curses the the earth itself. So it's Genesis chapter four, verses nine to twelve. So it's sort of four. It's, it's, and it's about three hundred and fifty letters that make up that that little square of text. I sort of I went through just all the fairly brief chapters that where, where Cain actually appears, trying to choose a section. I kind of knew it had to be around that sort of amount, about three hundred and fifty letters. The long form anagram. If it's too long, then it's not really that impressive. Like if you you know like yes, like, yeah, like, yeah. like most novels are yeah. an anagram of. A Tale of Two Cities, for instance, you know, it's kind of, it doesn't really, you know, if, if it goes beyond like a page, then it's like, well, whatever, you had every letter at your disposal yes, at yeah, fairly yeah, yeah. normal frequency, so yeah, like, what, yeah. you know, that's nothing. And at the same time, obviously, you're not, you're not just doing kind of, it's not a crossword, you're not just doing little, it's not an anagram of somebody's name, it has to be something more than that. So it has to be a real compromise between concision and length. You need yes. enough one to play with, um, but it also needs to be, it needs to almost fail. I think yes, it needs yeah. to almost fail to be even remotely coherent. So I'd heard a lot about this book. We have a mutual friend, Melissa Lee Horton, a uh, very close friend to both of us. Um, but I wasn't aware of what the, the I knew what was happening with the anagram, yeah. but I hadn't seen the book. And I saw it quite recently, and there's a lot more going on around the anagrams. Yeah. Graphically, it's a very interesting yeah. book as well. And there's a text that sort of runs alongside. Yes, yeah. You, and that was kind of, the whole design of it was entirely kind of Tom's thing. He had about six different prototypes of ways that we could present the, the marginal notes, I guess. The, because they are anagrams of, of, of quite a limited set of um, letters, and obviously the letters have to, have to appear with the exact same frequency. So you end up using some really obscure words. Mm. So I knew as I was going through it that a lot of those words were going to need, I felt that people wouldn't actually bother to look them up. So like the word Holothurian, which yes. again I had to, you know, which just was sort of thrown up while I was trying to put letters together. And then I had to look it up and Holothurian is the the the, um, the, the genus of the, the sea cucumber. So to move in a Holothurian okay. ways to sort of bob just oh, constantly okay, yeah. on the bottom oh. of the, the ocean. Something like that. Feeling fairly Holothurian at the moment, to be honest. Um, and, and also has a lot of H's in Holothurian. And there, there are many, yeah, many, because yeah, yeah. it's the King James version of the Bible. There are lots I did of H's. I notice there are a lot of H's. 41 H's, H's, H's yeah, I think. Yeah. It's got 40 E's, which is useful. Yeah. And so so many H's, which kind of became, well, I, I found that I had to make a sort of joke out of that, one that almost threatened to undermine the whole project. So there's a lot of sighing, a lot of laughing, um, a lot of owing, <laughs> a lot of, and a bit where one of the um, characters just names pencils up to 9H and, and back again. Um, and and, and that, that kind of was something that could potentially be quite funny, but also could just make the whole thing just seem completely daft, I guess, as well. But it's always, I feel like my work always teeters on that life edge anyway. Yeah. So that was kind of natural. Reading the anagrams, it sort of, it was making me think of, you know, how with certain groups of friends, you have different levels of playing Scrabble, uh -huh, and so, uh -huh. you know there is a, there is the absolute correct rule book way of playing yeah. Scrabble, and then there are different sort of in the spirit versions, the aren't there? And I uh, get the impression that whoever the character was that was writing those anagrams would be quite annoying to play Scrabble. Extremely annoying, because it's extremely annoying in general. Because yeah. compl it's completely right. It's, yes, it's technically <laughs> correct, and that is, that is it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it technically exactly fits. But the, so there was a plot that gradually, I had about six for a while, and I committed to writing 31 of them, because I talked about it in a couple of interviews, saying, yeah, yeah. This, it's going to be the sequence of 31 anagrams. And then I sat down to kind of get on with the project, and in my head, I'd sort of, I think I'd sort of kidded myself that I'd already written quite a few, and actually it was, it was six that I'd written, so I had to write 25 more. <laughs> and, and, and the six kind of vaguely fitted. I had these three 
characters uh, the, 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 who I was kind of juggling around and, and, and that it was basically a sort of sitcom because the, the whole genre of the sitcom or the sort of comedy drama kind of it, it, it is formulaic it is you have the sort of A, B and C plot you have the sort of the characters that reset every episode almost like a cartoon-like thing where even if they died in the last episode they're back they're alive again in the next one um, and that felt like quite a nice parallel to me the, the, the rearrangement of it's normally a kind of comedy of manners, isn't it? In the sitcom, it's a sort of it's it's it, it, generally all of the humour in a sitcom derives from characters trying to save face in one way or another, um, or get away with a certain sort of lie or or, or, or pretending to be something other than what they are. Um, but it's always just a rearrangement of the same elements in every episode. So I wanted to kind of that to be a little parallel with the yeah, and it's sort of about our obsession with TV as well, and and partly about. I suppose on a sort of personal level, the fact that I, I, I am able to engage far, far more emotionally with a sort of long-running TV show than I seem to be able to engage emotionally with extremely tragic current events, you know. And well, more and more of us are disappearing into Netflix, aren't we? Yeah, Rather yeah, than yeah. engaging with what's... Actually, and I don't mean that in a deprecating no, no, way. It's no, 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 it's literature, it's part of what we, you know, it's part yeah. of how we represent the world that we're yeah. in. But I wanted to kind of reflect on it as well, that this sort of, and often these shows, sort of things like Breaking Bad, which I really, really love, often you sort of, you want to watch something where, where the characters are in a far more stressful situation than you are in your own life, whatever's going on, there you want something that takes you out of that by actually kind of stressing you out for 45 minutes to an hour of the, so the 31 anagrams kind of form this 31 episode cancelled TV show that just goes wrong some, yeah. some way through. And that it's, the narrative is, is has, has uh, the three Kane, Father K, who's kind of my equivalent of Henry in John Berryman's Dream Songs, and Ada, who's the, the, the one female character that sort of compete for her affections in the kind of slightly chauvinist tradition of the sitcom. And it's it's set in a sort of balkanised territory, sort of disputed city between two states kind of thing, and they end up kind of on the run, they end up in exile, and well, they, they end up sort of starving to death in a sort of uh, temporary prison, essentially, is this will be this rather depressing plot of the whole thing, <laughs> ultimately it sort of comes down to that and there are various um, complications and things all the way. And I, was, I got so into this, I was sort of really, really in love with this and I felt as though the story really hung together and of course actually it doesn't really, it's kind of more in my head than it is yeah. in the kind of 31. So partly the notes were an opportunity to give definitions for the really obscure words, the sort of logoria, the drogue, the, um, the whole furia, um, and also because you can't really do footnotes anymore because that's been done so well by yes. I mean for, you know, I mean like 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 David Foster Wallace you can't really do footnotes mm. post David Foster Wallace without it just seeming like you're paying homage to David yes, Foster Wallace yeah, yeah. essentially. So so I felt as though even though that would be a neat way of just defining the obscure words, um, it would yeah, it would just look derivative. It was a fine art academic Crystal Bennis who I've been sort of in email contact with for some years and and, and she read some of the animals while I was writing them and, and she suggested this sort of looking at some old kind of sacred texts and looking at the scolia, um which are like, like it's sort of like a donut of notes, very small notes around the edge of a small yeah, yes, central. Yeah. So it completely reflects that, yeah, but how yeah, it's presented yeah. in the book completely reflects like almost like certain editions of the Midrash use that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So it's just a continuous prose around it. And is there, are there any plans to develop that text around it, or, is, or do you see that as just a, a sort of solely belonging to Cain? I think just solely that, belonging yeah. to it, really. I enjoyed it a lot, yeah. and it was an opportunity to kind of fill in the plot holes that yeah. the anagrams kind of um, yes. made necessary. Um, and also, they're sort of like backstage notes, almost like blog reviews, episode by episode blog reviews yeah, of yeah. this putative TV show. Which, like, so, and I'm kind of aware of how incredibly self-indulgent as a project it is really that it was a lot of fun to write I really really enjoyed it and, and I was kind of aware while I was doing it that this will be quite enjoyable for some people and other people will find it intensely off-putting <laughs> it's kind of you know sort of fake 31 episode TV show that, yeah, I'm, yeah. that I'm 
creating a sort of fake backstory for. But on the other, I think if you like, I don't know, if you're somebody who quite likes postmodern American fiction or who likes kind of the sort of games that Nabokov plays and like Pale Fire and things like that, I always Pale Fire is like a huge influence yeah. on it as well. Did many people feel like Kane was being quite self-indulgent? I'm sort of like making... Uh, I don't know really. No, it had, it's had some really, really generous yeah, and, yeah. and lovely reviews actually, quite sort of surprisingly. But often it is the sort of the anagram sequence that is singled out. In yeah, no, that's what I think this, yeah. this is quite a difficult Because the three sections thing. are very, very different. Yeah, and the, and, yeah. And the last are, section's much more sort of welcome. I suppose yeah, it sort of yeah. rewards you for sticking yeah, for through sticking it, through. Yeah, 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 for sticking with the anagram, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I've done a couple of things where I've read from it live and, and um, one of my friends and grad students, um, Sean Coletti, um, has... He has a very good kind of Californian, low Californian voice, and yeah. he reads the um, the notes okay. as if he is sort of. He, and he actually does a weird sort of thing. He actually, one of his jobs is that he reviews TV shows episode by episode mm. on podcasts and, and, yes, uh, yeah. and in, in in print as well. Um, so he felt like a sort of natural person to us to read. Yeah, yeah. It makes it quite long, but yeah. it was quite a nice way. Because I, I think what was running through my mind as I was reading it, because I'm very because we, we interview people that describe themselves as purely spoken word and yeah. purely page poetry. I don't, personally, I don't like to try like get into that too much because yeah. reading stuff like, you do what you want, you know, basically. But I just, the fashion for spoken word is sort of inherent in it is some form of what honesty, whatever, yeah. the, whatever the audience believe, and clear communication. Mm -hmm. So I just worry that there may begin to be a pressure on poets in general. Mm to move away from the kind of writing you display yeah. in Kane. Um, I think my question, one, it's a pretty simple one. Is there a problem with seeming clever in your writing, you know, deliberately? Oh, sure, no. Um, or do, you, do, do you feel any pressure in that way? Yeah, no, and, I, and again, sort of like just reading reviews and responses and sometimes just sort of blog reviews and things like that, which is where, where people would go on for like 10,000 words and some people just seem sort of scarily obsessed with you or obsessed with really hating you sometimes. <laughs> but you sort of, I feel like I've learned an awful lot from that. And just from the sort of five collections over the years, yeah, I yeah. find that um, kernel of um, either anger or love or something human that kind of counterbalances the 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 sort of sense of play in a way, the sort of serious play. You know, it, it's... So I know there, 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 there probably would be people who were just like, oh, this is just sort of academic kind of navel-gazing yeah. but, but I think I felt that like having Kane as a project gave me a focus to get away from that, to actually write about yeah. sort of the, the many different sort of visual and literary interpretations of Kane. And there are certain things that I kind of forgot that I meant to sort of make more of. So the, the, the kind of school poems in that book, which are just autobiographical kind of reflections on, on sort of embarrassing memories at school, they, they came from Hermann Hesse's novel, um, Demion, which is not a terribly good novel. It's one of his worst, probably. I think it was the last one that he wrote, and it kind of feels like that. Um, but it, the, 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 the relatively good first half of that novel is, is about a sort of extremely oversensitive schoolboy and the kind of trouble that he gets into because of that. And, then, and, and it's about Kane, essentially. Yeah. The, the, the whole novel, Demion, is sort of obsessed with the Kane mythology and, and the meaning of Kane. So it was one of, the, it was one of many novels and sort of creative responses to Kane that I read mm. while I was researching the book. But then I sort of forgot to, I mean, that was something that I probably should have put in a footnote or something like that, or just had a little sort of, you know, work cited thing at the back, in a yeah. sense, because I think that, that you know, it, it, it kind of worked, and there were little, little sort of reflections and refractions between the poems and things like that, and, and so, so, so the, the sort of long monologue poem where I sort of gone about how annoying I was at school and how I just, because I couldn't play football, I would just go around sort of just talking at the, the boys who were playing football and just making up 
very self-indulgent long stories that had these sort of plot arcs and that had these that, that, that I would even do commercial breaks mm. in. Like, yeah. Intensely annoying. And, the, and I wrote and I wrote that after writing the the anagrams, but then hadn't necessarily noticed that that, that, that was a direct link. That there's a sort of comment yeah. on the project yeah. as a whole to a certain extent, but one that is. It's funny you should say that because after reading that poem about annoying people at school Ooh. and then going on to the anagram, it's a bit like someone poking you. You know, because <laughs> you think well. I mean, I certainly did. Well, I'm going to stick with this. Yeah. You know, you won't be beat. You know, you often had that with books. I'm not going to be beaten by this. Yeah, you know? no, and no, I've no, a, no, no. I, I quite like art in general that com deliberately tries to confuse you. I'm not saying yeah. suggesting this does, but like yeah. I'm quite up for the challenge. Yeah, but it yeah, did yeah. feel like someone was poking you in the chest, going, "Come on, come yeah. on, stick yeah. with it." Yeah. Um, <laughs> you've just had a novel mm. published. Mm. Um, maybe you could briefly describe that a little bit. Yeah. 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 Um, it's it's called the transition. Um, it's it tends to get summarised as a dystopia, which which I suppose I wasn't really expecting. It's it, it set sort of five to ten years into the future, and it's sort of a satire of the housing crisis and also sort of generational tensions and um, a kind of self improvement scheme, which is central to the novel. So it's um, it centres on a young, well, actually not that young, couple, a couple in their thirties who um, are living in a wallpapered conservatory uh, sort of bedsit and, and this is sort of you know, slightly into the future where, where nobody can actually really even afford like a whole flat anymore and it is just you know everybody everybody is in the equivalent of bedsits and is paying kind of 500 pounds a week at least for them and that's sort of thing. and, and it's just trapped in this cycle of um debt and of not really being able to really start their lives if you know what i mean and, and, and you've so been talking to my friend <laughs> I live, in, I live in a part of South London which is quickly developing into that. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I just feel as though that's coming in, and it, we sort of talk about it in London, but I really feel as though it's coming in other cities as well. No, definitely. Like, I, of, mean, yeah. I mean, in like Bristol, which yeah. is so far away from London, yeah. but it just happens to be quite a sort of attractive, arty city, um, and therefore a desirable place to live. But like, there, there are real, there are really shitty areas of Bristol where like a two bedroom falling apart terrace will still set you back the best part of half a million pounds. Yes. I mean, it's kind of, you know, this, this is somewhere that used to be. You know, people used to be able to buy those with their student grants. Yeah. You know, there were people who were just a few years older than me yeah. who went to university for free, were just given ten thousand pounds at the beginning of the yeah, year, yeah. and some of them bought houses with that because houses cost nothing. Mm. And it, so there is this kind of I don't know. Yeah, I'm starting to sound really querible. So it's really like, and I kind of fed the novel in a sense, yeah, that yeah. kind of sense of like this is actually this is a massive sort of displacement of wealth yeah. and a massively imbalanced system that we're being asked to accept and it's not it's not acceptable mm. and if and if it's not possible to support a family on something like a teacher's salary which it really used to be like if you look at the statistics of who used to occupy these houses that are now rented by 20 lawyers to like one building um and it was like it was a family where where either the mother or the father worked and yes. it would be a job like you know but these these jobs that we sort of go to university and then train and then do other courses to train for and become qualified for and then you're earning like you know you're bringing in about 1500 a month and 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 it goes nowhere you know and it's like what the hell and you just feel like you've been sort of sold this sort of massive lie is there any particular reason this ended up as a novel? Do you feel like you could? It was the only way of tackling because it's quite—it's a big, I mean, it's a huge subject. Yeah, but. I mean, I've, I've always written fiction. I've yeah. always written short stories. It's just been sort of very limited success. So there'd be stories that would be published in quite small journals and things like that. And I always—I've always been sort of desperate to write a novel. My dad would always give me his old. He's a freelance translator, and he always give me his old typewriter or word processor when he upgraded to to to, to the next one. So every year, I'd have a different typewriter or small thing to, mm -hmm. to work on. So I was always trying to, you know, from from the age of about eight, really, I was always trying to write yeah. prose. I was always trying to write long form prose, and, and it took a lot of 
just trying to get used to working on that scale, a lot of getting it wrong before I came up with anything yeah. that was just hung together the way novel is supposed to, and kind of accepting that it has to be something quite systematic, that it has to have a plot that you've thought through, that you've kind of mapped out a little bit. And who, who's the novel published by? Um, fourth, fourth, fourth Estate. Fourth Estate. Uh, yeah, it just came out in January. And, um, it's been fun. It feels quite different. Yeah. I think it's, I'm it's, not very good at making notes. Did we mention the title of it? I think I do. <laughs> I'll, I'll say it again. Say it again. For <laughs> advertising, it's called The Transition. The Transition. And it's out yeah. now in all the bookshops. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it, but it's, it's this quite, again, going back to the sort of the vulgar matter of success and sales and things like that, it, 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 it's, it's felt really strange because like already before it was published, it had already been read by more people just within the industry and within sort of TV and film scouts and things like that and, and radio. It had already been read by more people than had ever read my poetry before it was even published. So yeah. that felt like a real, I don't know, it's stupid. It's sort of, but it just, it, it's really immature to think that way, but it just felt more, it has felt more real. It has felt more, like, you know, and I really cringe at myself saying that because I do love poetry and I will mm. kind of carry on writing books. Got to sell books though, Luke. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to hustle, you've got to hustle. You don't want to be stuck in one of those bedsits. No, no, no. <laughs> Sorry. I yeah. Oh God, what were we saying? Yep, we've got my one eye on the clock and I think we're running out of time, so yeah. we might finish with a reading. Please. Shall I read one more poem? Yeah, yeah okay, yeah. I'll do. So this, like I was saying, there is quite a lot of kind of TV and obsession with TV in, in, the, in the book and the lead into the long anagram sequence is kind of a couple of poems about television. One that is just a sort of an attempt at a sonnet about television and one is about binge watching and then and then one about zombies which tends to kind of work as a standalone yeah outside of the yeah. outside of the sequence i often feel when i'm reading something that's quite narrative um i feel like i'm trying to convince somebody to watch a box set that i'm like three seasons into and they're probably not going to watch it yeah, and yeah, i'm trying to yeah. talk them around to it but yeah but this one works in isolation so it's called zombies When I come round, everyone is big into zombies. They are playing zombie games and watching big-budget remakes of zombie films. They dress as zombies and spend half the day in SFX getting made up to look more like zombies. They go on zombie team-building exercises. They have zombie-themed weddings and read zombie comic books and watch many episodes of high-quality zombie dramas. It's like I've died and gone to stupid. What's the deal with zombies, I ask a man dressed as a zombie in one of many Ask a Zombie booths which have popped up on the high street. We're having a zombie moment, he says. Well, clearly zombies have tapped into some key part of the collective unconscious I don't have, because I do not give a flying fuck about zombies, I tell him. Easy there, buddy, he says. You looked at yourself recently. I'm glad you read that, I really like that <laughs> Um Thank you very much, Luke. No, thank uh, you, it's a pleasure.